You would remain standing and open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We will pick it up in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Father, we are comforted by these words and we pray this morning as we look into these words that are before us, Lord, that you have given to us that we would receive comfort in the world in which we live in today. I pray that we would accomplish that purpose in us. Thank you, Lord, for your word. What a blessing it is. Minister to our hearts and lives, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. You may be seated. So, here we are. We've been working our way through the book of 1 Thessalonians and uh, looking into the various things that Paul had been sharing with him, them. Remember, <clears throat> we took note of the fact that he had a very short period of time with them, uh, anywhere from three to five weeks, somewhere in that neighborhood, and, but enough time to where Paul was able to share with them the things that were necessary as believers in Christ and how to walk with God and the things that they needed to do. You remember last week as we were in the beginning of chapter 4, we saw that Paul exhorted them to walk uh, in holiness, love, and honesty. Um, he had told them that this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, to be set apart, used of God, and to be changed. And so now... Uh, he will address some of their questions about those who have died and what to look forward to. You remember, Paul had sent Timothy uh, to see how the church was doing because he was concerned because he had to leave uh, rather rapidly and he didn't know for sure whether or not they were going to stand in the face of the tribulation, the persecution that was going to come upon them and that was coming upon them at this time. And so he sent Timothy to go find out how they were doing and they had brought word back to him. And with that, he brought back a series of questions that they had asked and certainly we see that today as we look into our text that one of the questions that they had was what happens to those who die before the Lord comes back? There was a, a great anticipation that Paul had uh, and that he transferred to the Thessalonians, and that is that the Lord would come back, that he was coming back for his church, and, and certainly Paul anticipated that he would see the return of the Lord. He believed that it would happen in his day, and he taught that to them, to live with that expectation, an expectation that Christ could come at any moment. And even though Paul never saw it in his day, it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. He's coming back. He's coming back for his church. And then once he removes his church, he will come back with his church at the end of the tribulation period to bring judgment down upon the world. So Paul gives them these words of encouragement on how they can have hope even in death. And certainly it speaks volumes to us as believers as well. In verse 13, he starts out in this section. He said, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. This was a church in Greece, uh, not far from Mount Olympus. As a matter of fact, it was in view uh, on, on a very clear day, you could see Mount Olympus from where they were. The Greek culture was very dark in regards to those who passed on from this world to the next one. One Greek philosopher said that hope was for the living and not for the, the dead. And on many Greek t 
tombs, it was inscribed simply no hope. I, I really see that in the world in which we're living in today. Those who do not know Christ, there's no hope in death. And as a matter of fact, uh, you know, I've seen many a brave man and self-willed and very self-sufficient when he realizes that death is approaching, approaching how fearful they become because there's no hope. If you've bought into that philosophy that this life is all there is and when it's done, it's over and, and that's that, well, that's a pretty hopeless life. It explains a lot why people would live with such lack of regard for morals and principles and think that this is all you're gonna get, so get everything you can and no matter how you have to get it, do it. Because that's all there is. But you know what? Death has a way of bringing people to a place of reality. That's why when I officiate a funeral, I always preach the gospel. I make sure that I'm speaking to the living that one day they're going to be dead and they need to make sure before they get to that point where they're gonna spend their eternity. This was the culture of the Greeks. They, they had no hope at all in death. As a matter of fact, they thought when it came, uh, there was no more hope at all. They believed that you died and you went to Hades, an unseen place of torment, and from there you crossed over the river Styx. If you ever wondered where uh, the band Styx gets their name from, it's from that river. That's, and, and it's a, you know, it's a, uh, from the Greek philosophy and beliefs. And uh, they believe that when you got to the river Styx, that someone was, a, that you were escorted by someone and you either ended up in Alessum, a beautiful field, or you ended up in Tartus, a place of torment and darkness. A very negative view of death. Paul had spoken to them about the Lord's coming, about the rapture, about it happening before the day of the Lord began. He had spoken to them about the Antichrist, about, very, about a lot of things that he had spoken to them about. And now when Timothy comes from Thessalonica to Corinth, where Paul was, and he tells him they have all, he, uh, Timothy tells Paul that they have all these questions and Paul tells them, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who fall asleep. In a few weeks, Paul was with the Thessalonians. He emphasized the soon return of Jesus and the Thessalonians believed it earnestly. And this was part of the reason that they were the kind of church Paul complimented so highly. Yet after Paul left, they wondered about those Christians who died before Jesus came back. They were troubled by the idea that these Christians might miss out on the great event that, and that they might miss the victory and the blessings of Jesus' coming. I find it interesting that they would be troubled by these things in such a short period of time. It hadn't been that long since Paul had been there, but already many of the believers had already passed. And so they had this burning question. The fact is, is that, you know, they saw the return of the Lord and with that expectation, they desired that. And they thought, wow, this is great. We all get to experience this. The Lord's coming back. And then when, so, when some of their friends and their relatives would die, they think, oh no, they missed it. They missed it. And that's part of, part of it was because of their view of death. That death was it. And that's why Paul is going to instruct them about the fact that for the believer, death is not the end, it's the beginning. It's really the beginning of eternal life. It's the beginning of a new life. You know, one without pain, without sorrow, without sickness, without death. A place of greatness. And Paul wants them to have this glorious hope. It's with some interest that we note that four times in his letters, Paul asked Christians to not be ignorant about something. He tells us in Romans 11:25, don't be ignorant about God's plan for Israel. In 1 Corinthians 12:1, he says, don't be ignorant about spiritual gifts. 
In 2 Corinthians 1.8, he says, don't be ignorant about suffering and trials in the Christian life. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we see here, he says, don't be ignorant about the rapture and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Remarkably, these areas where ignorance, this, these are areas where ignorance is still common within the Christian world today. So many people in the church do not know what the scriptures say about these issues. We see it when people, uh, they're stunned when they have trials and tribulations in their life as a believer, as if it shouldn't be that way. We see it when people are ignorant to the uh, spiritual gifts. And especially in this day where there's a, a, a divide within the church as to whether or not the gifts are really for us today. At least a limited number of them. I want you to understand that. Nobody says that no gifts are for today. They all, we can all agree on certain gifts of evangelism, preaching, teaching, you know, these kind of gifts. But do we really need the sign gifts anymore? Well, I can't find anything in the scripture that says that that is a place where it ends. I, I honestly can't see a time in the, in the church and in the world to where the power of the Holy Spirit and those gifts are needed than, more so than today. We walk around a church as a very powerful body when we should be standing strong and the power and the might of God and his Holy Spirit, seeing God work in and through our lives. So critical, so important. And these things are, for many people, they are ignorant of what God's word says about it. And then when it comes to the rapture and the second coming of Jesus, there's definitely a lot of debate and a lot of ignorance, in my opinion, about these things. He says here, he wanted to talk to them about those who had fallen asleep. Sleep was a common way to express death in the ancient world. But among pagans, it was almost always seen as an eternal sleep. Ancient writings are full of this pessimism regarding death. Of a man once dead, there is no resurrection, one philosopher said. Uh, Hopes are among the living, the dead are without hope. Another one. Suns may set and rise again, but we, when once our uh, brief light goes down, must sleep an endless night. No hope in death. Christians call death sleep, but they emphasize the idea of rest. Early Christians began to call their burial places cemeteries, which means dormitories or sleeping places. Yet the Bible never describes the death of an unbeliever as sleep, for there is no rest, peace, or comfort for them in death. That term, sleep and peace and rest, is only found in believing in Jesus Christ. One commentator said this, he said, though Paul using idioms common in his day referred to death as sleep, it does not prove the erroneous idea of soul sleep, that the present dead in Christ are in a state of suspended animation waiting for a resurrection to consciousness. Since to depart from this world in death uh, to be is to be with Christ is described by Paul as very far better in Philippians chapter 1 verse 23 than the present state of blessed communion with the Lord and blessed activity in high service. It is evident that sleep as applied to the believers cannot be intended to teach that the soul is unconscious. The idea, and it is a false doctrine that is taught, that when a Christian dies, that the soul remains in a state of animation in sleep until the resurrection is a false doctrine. Paul makes it very clear to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It doesn't say, he doesn't say, hey, it's far better that I go rest in the ground and stay there than it is to remain with you. 
He knew that when he died, that he would go to be with the Lord. And he saw that as being something that was far than for him to remain. Well, that he was going to benefit from it. But it was better that it remained for their sakes, for the Philippians' sake. But he saw that as something of a triumph as he would go and, uh, and leave this world and go to be with the Lord. And he also points out the very thing that for us as believers in Christ, when we're dealing with the loss of someone else who believes in Christ, he points out that we should not sorrow as others sorrow. And this is part of the reason why he was telling them this. He said, if you're a believer and somebody else is a believer and they have left, then, then we, we have hope. We have genuine hope. It's not, a, it's not a pie in the sky fairy tale. It's a truth that is given to us about the state of those who leave this place. We sorrow, but we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. When we lose a loved one or a friend, for the Christian death is dead and leaving this body is like lying down, laying down for a nap and waking in glory. It is moving and not dying. For these reasons, Christians should not sorrow as others who have no hope when their loved one in Jesus dies. When my son was killed, one of the things that the Lord ministered to my heart that was just so comforting to me as I was pondering this whole thing, you know, I mean, uh, my grandfather had died um, when I was younger, and so I had experienced death a little bit of someone who was very close to me, but nothing is near as like a son, losing a son. And I really struggled with the whole idea about death and what it was like and all of that. And the Lord really ministered to my heart that it was as simple as walking through a door, walking from one room into the next. That it's that simple for those who depart and go to be with the Lord. It's instantaneous. At the point of death, the soul no longer is there. It's instantaneously in front of the Lord. And believe me, there's no regret. There's no regret. Although I really struggle with those who say that they've had near-death experiences, they've come back and they tell us all about it. I really struggle with that uh, for various reasons. But... There's one thing for sure I've never had anybody tell me uh, in, that say that they've experienced it, that it's a bad place and they don't want to go back there. At least they got that part right. I'm not so sure about the other parts. But the fact is, is that for us as believers, when we die, we instantly go to be with the Lord and it's a far better place than what we have here. No matter how old they are, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot of different philosophies and thought on what age we'll be when we die and we go to be with the Lord and we have our, you know, new bodies and everything. Uh, I believe it'll be about the time like with Adam. Adam was around probably 30 years old instantly when he was created and seems to be a good year to be alive when you're about 30, 35, something like that. So maybe, maybe we'll all look 30 again. I see a lot of nodding heads there. Some of you are you're younger than 30. You go, wait a minute. No, I don't want to look like that. Most of us in this room are glad to look 30 again. As Christians, we may mourn the death of other Christians, but not as others who have no hope. Our sorrow is like the sadness of seeing someone off on a long trip, knowing you will see them again, but not for a long time. That's really what it's like. You know, when I ponder those that have gone before me, I long to see them. And I realize that in order for that to happen, I have to leave here to go join them. They're not gonna come back to me. They wouldn't wanna come back to me. And they're waiting, going, come on up. You'll like it here. The water's fine, come on in. And I long for that. And it seems like a long time for some of those that I love friends and relatives both that have gone before me. And I look back on that and I think that that time period, I said, man, Lord, that is a long time. One of the other things that's so glorious about the death of a believer 
is that instantly you are outside of the realm of time. Time is not relevant anymore. To those who are in heaven right now, it's been the blink of an eye to them. It's been nothing as far as time. It is us who are left behind that have that. And we wrestle with that. And I understand that. But what gives us great hope is the fact that we know that we will see them again no matter how long our life extends. At the end, we will have this great reunion as we all gather by the river, right? All gathering together around the throne of God. What a glorious day that will be. And Paul is giving to them, he's sharing with them, there's this great hope for those who have missed out on the Lord's rapture of the church. That even though they weren't here when the Lord comes back, he's going to tell them, he's gonna say, don't worry, they're gonna be there too. They're not missing out on anything. And that's one of the other things that we have to hope for as believers is that one day we will come back, the Lord will come back and the dead in Christ shall rise first and then those who are alive and remain shall be gathered up together with him in the air. That's a part of the hope as a believer. If the Lord comes back in our time, and to be honest with you, I don't, I don't see how he could not, the way things are going in the world today. But I'm not God. And God has a way of taking at the right moment to change things in the world so that it can continue on. That, that it's not finished because God has a purpose and a plan. And a part of that purpose and plan was you and me. Because there are other times in history where we could look back and you certainly would think, this is it, it's done. I was not alive I wasn't even thought of yet in World War II, during World War II, but certainly close enough to it in my lifetime to have personal experiences with those that were a part of it and their mindset and their thoughts about that time. You have to understand that for many of the believers in that day, they really thought that this was it. This is it, the Lord's coming back. Don't take ration stamps because that's the mark of the beast. That's what my grandparents were taught. Don't take them. They're the mark of the beast. They thought for sure they were on the cusp of it all. But there were things that had to be fulfilled that have been fulfilled today. One of those being that Israel had to become a nation. And so those things weren't, even though so many things about it that looked that way, it could not be fulfilled at that time because of the need. As a matter of fact, the church erred greatly during those times trying to make it all work, started teaching, well not started, they continued teaching replacement theology that the church was now the, the Israel that God was gonna work with, that Israel, God was finished with Israel. So there was no need for it to become a nation. This is it, we're done. Hitler's the Antichrist, for sure. But God, turned the table around because it was something that he desired that the time was not right and that he wanted so many more to enter into faith before he came back. In verse 14, he says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So we have more than a wishful hope of the resurrection. In the resurrection of Jesus, we have an amazing example of it and a promise of our own resurrection. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And this was the confident belief the Apostle Paul and the early Christians had, and us too, if you believe in the Lord today. We will certainly live because Jesus lives and our union with him is stronger than death. This is why we do not sorrow as those who have no hope and why we have more than a wishful, wishful hope. It is a certainty that we know that the dead in Christ will rise. And when a sinner dies, we mourn for them. When a believer dies, we only mourn for ourselves because they are with the Lord. 
In the ruins of ancient Rome, you can see the magnificent tombs of pagans with gloomy inscriptions on them. One of them reads this, I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. What a hopelessness. Don't put that on my tombstone. Just say, he was here visiting for a while and now he's gone to be with Jesus. You know, something, anything but that one, right? Or, and this is the contrast to it all, you can, you can visit the murky catacombs and read the glorious inscriptions of uh, one of the most common Christian epithets from the catacombs was in peace. And then it had have the uh, Psalm 48, eight, it says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety we should look at death the same way that the early Christians did. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain will be until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So Paul emphasizes that this was an authoritative command. Though we do not know whether Paul received this by direct revelation or if it was an unrecorded saying of Jesus. Either way, he says, by the word of the Lord that we know these things. One way or another, this came from Jesus to Paul. He says to them here, he says, those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Paul wanted the Thessalonians to know that those who are asleep, um, Christians who have died before Jesus' returns, his return, it will by no means be at a disadvantage. Matter of fact, I think they're at a much greater advantage. Those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede them. God will allow those who are asleep to share in the glory of the coming of the Lord. When he says here that we who are alive, uh, it means that Paul himself shared in this expectancy. It wasn't because Paul had an erroneous promise of the return of Jesus in his lifetime. More feasible is the solution that's, that sees Paul setting an example of expectancy for the church of all ages. Proper Christian anticipation includes the imminent return of Christ. For those who say that they are Christians and do not believe that the Lord is not coming back, they err greatly. It is a part of the foundational beliefs in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that he came and that he died for our sins, and that he was buried and that he rose again, but that one day he shall return, that he shall take claim to the title deed of the earth, that one day he will rule and reign here on this earth physically. But before that day comes, he will come for his bride and remove her from the earth. There's a little question about that and we'll get to that in a moment. But we remember this, in 1 John 3, 1, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. And in verse 2, it says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. In verse 3, And everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Earlier in this chapter, Paul had made it very clear what the will of God was for them, the will of God for us as well. Our sanctification, our being purified, holiness, righteousness, truth, being set apart for service unto God. This is our hope. And, and this is the thing that John says. John says that, that if you believe that the Lord is coming back, that what will happen is that you will purify your life because you know that his return is near. And it doesn't matter. Paul believed that, and that was 2,000 years ago. And he lived by that. And he is encouraging the Thessalonians to do the same thing. 
to live by that, to purify yourselves in the light of this hope that Christ is coming back. You see, when you believe that the Lord is coming back and that it's near, it causes you to want to tell others about it if you care about them at all. Because of the fact that if, if you don't tell them who's going to, well, I'll leave that up to somebody else. Well, what if there isn't anybody else? This I know that if you know them and you're before them, then sure enough, God's called you to do it. That's why you've put, he's put you He's put you in their, in their life, in their presence in order to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we have that anticipation, the hope of the return of the Lord, then I believe that that's a part of what will take place in a believer's life. We have that hope and that anticipation. And I think about that in light of what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 45 to 51, where he says, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find doing so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him a ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and he and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at, that, and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites and there shall be weeping in the of teeth. I believe that the, the hope of the return of Christ causes us also to be a good steward over the things of God that he has given to us. And that we don't say, and I've heard Christians say this to my face, oh, you know, they've been saying that for centuries that Jesus is coming back. Where is his coming? And they eat and they drink and they make merry like he's not going to come. Instead of understanding that the day is drawing closer, not further away. And because of that, then I need to sanctify my life unto God. And I sanctify my life unto God in this hope that his return will be right around the corner. And I don't, I don't want him to come in a time that I am not ready, that I am not expecting him. So we live in a readiness every day that the Lord could come today. You guys know my philosophy about cloudy days. I love cloudy days because it tells us in Acts chapter one that the day when the Lord comes back, he's gonna come back on the clouds. And so I think to myself, this could be it. Remember always rapture exercises, lifting your hands, right? You're gonna go, right? So, you know, here's the thing. We, we have this great anticipation that the Lord is going to come. And, and I know this, right? I get excited about cloudy days because it reminds me that, boy, this might be the day. But the truth is, he has the power to bring his own cloud, right? He's not dependent upon the weather systems in order to come in the cloud. But boy, what joy it can bring to our hearts, reflecting on the fact that his coming is near. What great enthusiasm it can give us to share with others about the love of Christ. So on cloudy days, we should be, you know, more willing to share. Hey man, the Lord's coming back. For everyone who has this hope purifies himself. So too it should be for ourselves. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. For the Lord himself, it says, that he will descend from heaven. And when Jesus comes, he will come personally. The Lord himself will descend and come with a shout. The ancient Greek word for shout here is the same word that is used for a ship's master com uh, command to the, his rowers or a commander speaking to his soldiers. Always there is a ring of authority and the note of urgency in that trumpet. 
with the voice of an archangel. This doesn't mean that the Lord himself is an archangel. The only one described as an archangel in the Bible is Michael. You have him in Jude chapter 1 and verse 9, also in the book of Daniel. Paul means that when Jesus comes, he will come in the company of prominent angels. And with that trump, believers are gathered with the trumpet of God. In the Old Testament, it sounded the alarm for war and threw the enemy into a panic in the sense of the seven trumpets described in Numbers chapter 10, verse 9, and also in Revelation 8 through 9, chapters 8 and 9. Trumpets also sounded an assembly of God's people, as in Leviticus 23, 24, and Numbers 10, 2. Here, the trump of God gathers together God's people. There are three other associations of trumpets in and in end times events. One is the last trump of 1 Corinthians 15, 52. That's the chapter where Paul lines out for us the the gospel in the first eight verses of that chapter. And then from there begins to tell us how this corruption, the body of corruption, must take on incorruption. That there will be in the twinkling of an eye, there will be this transformation that will take place when the Lord comes back for his church. Those of us who are alive and remain will be changed in, a, in such a quick, fast moment. It's almost immeasurable. The twinkling of an eye, it's just, it's, it's a nanosecond. It is below, you know, it's faster than a nanosecond that these things will take place. In that trump, the dead in Christ will be called up. And those who are alive and remain, remain will be changed. The others are the seven trumpets which culminate in, at Revelation 11:15, and the trumpet gathering the elect of Israel at the end of the age in Matthew 24, 31. And the dead in Christ, he says, will rise first. Paul's point to the Thessalonians is clear. The prior dead in Christ will not be left out of either the resurrection or the return of Jesus. In fact, they will experience it first. In verse 17, he says, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So those who are alive and remain until his coming, uh, they are caught up to meet Jesus in the air, and they will be with him uh, forever, and they will be reunited with their bodies, uh, and their souls and their bodies will be reunited. The verb translated caught up here means to seize or to carry off by force. There is often the notion of a sudden swoop and, and usually that of a force which cannot be resisted. In ancient Greek, in the ancient Greek, the phrase to meet was used as a technical term to describe the official welcoming of honored guests. This passage is the basis for the New Testament doctrine of the rapture the catching away of the believers to be with Jesus. The word rapture <clears throat> is not in the ancient Greek text, but comes from the Latin Vulgate, which translates the phrase caught up with rapturus, from which we get our English word rapture. Paul's statement under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is both dramatic and fantastic. He speaks of Christians flying upward, caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We wouldn't believe this unless the Bible told us it were so. Not any more than we would believe that God who became a baby, that he did miracles, that he died on a cross and he lives in us. It's not difficult to believe these things that Paul is telling us. For we believe that we have salvation through the work of Christ. Paul's plain language leaves no doubt regarding the certainty of this event. Yet the timing of this event in the chronology of God's prophetic plan is a matter of significant debate among Christians. Many, though certainly not all, Christians believe the Bible teaches that there will be an important seven-year period of history before the Battle of Armageddon and the trumpet return of Jesus. 
the debate about this catching away centers on where it fits within the final seven-year period, popularly known as the Great Tribulation, with reference to Matthew 20 or 21. There are three, uh, actually four different views that I'll mention here that are believed within the church. The pre-tribulation rapture position believes believers are caught up before this final seven-year period. The mid-tribulation rapture position believes believers are caught up in the midst of this final seven-year period. The pre-wrath rapture position believes believers are caught up at some time in the second half of this final seven-year period. Post-tribulationist rapture position believes believers are caught up at the end of this final seven-year period. The adherents of these different positions each believe their position is biblical and these differences of understanding should not make dividing lines of Christian fellowship. <coughs> I certainly agree with that. I don't think that it's something that we need to divide over, although oftentimes it becomes a point of division. Nevertheless, my opinion is that pre-tribulation rapture position is biblically correct. Even other references to the return of Jesus within 1st and 2nd Thessalonians support this understanding. 1st Thessalonians 1.10 shows believers waiting <coughs> for the return of Jesus. The clear in implication is that they had hope of his imminent return, not the expectation of an imminent great tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, which we're examining right now, assures us that those believers who died would share equally with the living in the events of the rapture and the resurrection, answering their fear that somehow the dead in Christ were at a disadvantage. But if Paul believed Christians would go through the great tribulation, he would count the dead in Christ as more fortunate than those living Christians who might very well have to endure the great tribulation. It would have been logical for Paul to comfort the Thessalonians with the idea that the dead in Jesus were better off because they would not have to experience that great tribulation. 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 through 10 comforts Christians enduring hardship, promising them a coming rest while the persecutors will face certain judgment. But if Paul knew that the church was destined to pass through the great tribulation, it would have been more appropriate for him to warn these Christians about worse trials and suffering ahead rather than to hold the promise of the coming rest that he had, had told them. So as you can see, we'll be, when we get to 2 Thessalonians, we'll be discussing this even more so. And here, Paul makes it very clear when he says, and thus we shall always be with the Lord, the manner in which Jesus will gather us to himself is impressive, but the main point <clears throat> is that whatever the state of the Christian, dead or alive, the Lord's coming, will they, they will always be with the Lord. This is the great reward of heaven to be with Jesus. Death can't break our unity with Jesus or with other Christians either. And... Um, when you, this term that we shall always be with the Lord is an important truth with many implications for us in our life. It implies, con, implies continuation. It assumes that you are already with the Lord. It implies hope for the dying. In death, we shall still be with the Lord. It implies a future confidence. After death, we are with the Lord. It implies advancement. We will one day always be with the Lord. Verse 18, it says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul did not tell them to take comfort, but to give comfort. In the way, in the way that God works, he's all, we always receive comfort as we give it. You know, here's the thing. The relationship with God is such that he's always working in our lives. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that, that God is referred to as the God of all comfort. And he comforts us through all the things that we go through. And that in itself is very um, 
you know, comforting itself to know that when I'm going through something that God is going to comfort me. But it goes so far beyond that. It says that he comforts us so that we in turn can comfort others. Sometimes as, as we've experienced God in our life going through various trials and tribulations, we encounter someone who does not know God, who has no hope, and we have this to offer them. You know, I'll go back to this only because it's a good reference point for me in my own life when it comes to the death of my son. You know how many times that I've had opportunity to comfort those who do not know Christ about death through the death of my son? And how I explained to them how God comforted me in the midst of all that? He brought me through. He didn't just bring me through. He grew me through. He strengthened me. He encouraged me. He solidified my faith. And all of that is because God was working in my life. And he, this aspect of the return of the Lord has that same idea, that same connotation. That what we have is to offer to a world that is hopeless. Hopeless in death, hopeless in life. Right? I mean, think about it. This whole idea of, of having everything that there is in life is unique to certain countries. Two-thirds of the world, that doesn't fly. They're actually very happy that they get to live every day and they get to sustain life. We cry when, you know, our car breaks down or, you know, whatever it may be. Something in relative to what they go through in their life is very meaningless. God wants us to grow and to comfort those who are in the world who have put their faith and trust in this world. Showing them the hopelessness, showing them the hope in Christ. And that you can have a life, even though you may not have everything, you can have Christ, which is better. I would truly desire to have nothing if it meant that I get to hold on to Christ. But if it meant that I have to let go of Christ in order to have everything, I don't want it. God in his grace and his mercy gives us so much more than we ever could hope for or deserve. The truth of the return of Jesus for his people and the eternal reunion of Jesus and his people is to be a source of comfort to Christians and it's a comfort that we are able to offer to others if they will come to know Christ as their savior. This only makes sense if the catching away of the previous verses actually delivers Christians from an impending danger. If the catching away only brings humanity to God for, for judgment, there is little comfort in these words. These words should give a great desire to tell others of what will come so that they will not have to experience the tribulation that is coming. Now, don't get me wrong when I say this, and I'll close with this. God has called every one of us to tribulation. We will have tribulation in our life. That's a given because God promises that. Jesus said it. In this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So it's going to happen. I am not an escapist. I will tell you this, though. I think it's an idiot that decides they wants to go through a period of time when the wrath of God is being poured out on the world. If somebody wants that to happen in their life, well, go ahead, stick around, I guess, if you want. I don't. And I don't believe God wants us to either. God has not appointed us to wrath. And we'll talk about that a whole lot more as we continue our way through First and Second Thessalonians. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious word that you have given to us today. I pray that you would encourage all, strengthen us. Lord, no matter what our view is about your return, one thing we can agree on is that you will come back. And we thank you for that promise, Lord. We hold on to that dearly. Lord, I am comforted by your word. And not only that, but it gives me the hope to share with others who have no hope. Even those that think they have hope. They have no hope because one day they will stand before you and have to answer for the life that they have lived. 
when, Lord, that you're giving them opportunity to simply come and receive salvation, to give their heart and life and to find the forgiveness that enables them to be in your presence forever. And, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us in our hearts with this message that we can take it out into the world and give it to others. And we thank you for this, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all stand, please? There's some neat things that are happening right now. I'm sure many of you have probably heard about what's going on at the Asbury University in Kentucky. And uh, don't know the legitimacy of it. I'm not there. I can't make a judgment on that. But it seems like there's just so many things going on right now in the world where God is making a push. Evangelism outreaches. This thing happening in Asbury. I pray it's the real deal. I really do. Having come out of the Jesus movement and seeing the Holy Spirit working and, and seeing what effect that had upon the world in which I lived in at the time, I pray that this is, this is it, that God is pouring out a spirit once again. I can't answer for Asbury, but you know what I can answer for? It's right here, our church. And we can pray that God would pour out his Holy Spirit upon us, that we would have revival here in our church that we would see God work in his power and his might through our lives. In the very near future, next Sunday, I'm going to be presenting some materials and some things to you about evangelism outreach. And I, I'm hoping that you'll be praying about it, that the Lord will minister to your heart, and that we'll begin to reach out into our communities in order to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. I believe the return of the Lord is near. And I believe the, the time is short for us to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that God revives us. I pray that God anoints us. And I pray that he encourages us to take that, that message of hope to the world. And may the Lord bless you with that this week. I pray that he works in your hearts mightily. And I pray all that in Jesus' name. God bless. In the blink of an eye, we'll slip away.